Hello, I'm Katie Manning and you're very lucky because you're listening to Gallifrey Public Radio. Enjoy! Gallifrey Public Radio, a weekly podcast dedicated to positive enjoyment of Doctor Who. We travel through classic and new episodes, explore the extended universe, and play a few games from time to time. We do discuss news, content that has been officially released, and the occasional interesting rumor, but we'll warn you before anything considered spoilers comes up. Welcome to episode 498 of Gallifrey Public Radio, where we get two surprise flavors in our wedding cake and have to figure out if the combination works. I'm Kier. I'm Haley. And I'm Jay. This week, Sarah Jane is practically racing to the altar, and Clyde's suspicions that the whole thing feels a little off proved to be 100% right in the wedding of Sarah Jane Smith. The kids learn that Sarah Jane has met someone that she genuinely adores, and it takes only about 20 minutes of screen time to propel that relationship to a marriage proposal. Clyde's subconscious worry that things will change makes him worry, and rightfully so, as the trickster arrives on the wedding day to whisk our heroes into a time-looped pocket dimension. They're not without allies, though, because a very familiar skinny man in a blue suit and brown trench coat crashes the wedding to help thwart this powerful nemesis. happiness, fulfillment, and love, and they wish to affirm their relationship with this marriage. Now I have to ask this question. If any person can show just cause or impediment why they may not be joined together, they can speak now forever on their lips. We have a story that involves uh, you know, our Sarah Jane core crew and the Doctor and K-9 all in the mix. So I was kind of wondering for you two personally how the balance between the nostalgia factor and the solid storytelling factor actually weighed out. Did one or the other sort of step forward and, and take the reins? I think they did a pretty good job of letting the Doctor be the Doctor and doing Doctory things but not having him completely take control of the situation and still letting our usual cast of children be the ones to solve things in the end. I I kind of agree. I feel like this was not a the doctor comes in and saves the day. Like this felt like something that the 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 kids typically would have been able to solve on their own. You know, it's we've seen them do this kind of thing previously. The the doctor's only real contribution aside from, you know, Technobabble and things like that, was, uh, you know, Clyde getting the Artron energy off the TARDIS. Mm-hmm. But aside from that, you could have lifted the Doctor from this completely and the story wouldn't have uh, suffered, like, greatly. Yeah, I, I think that 
that had to be maintained. If this wasn't something that the uh, that your Bannerman Road crew could have handled uh, on their own uh, or through some alternative means, then you've got something that proves that it's a it's like a a, a weakness for your principal characters. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, when things get a little bit too challenging uh, and um, uh, and the the adversaries are are just of, of that particular caliber. Even our titular heroes can't get us out of this and have to call in for you know for the big league backup. But by the same token, if you had this opportunity to be able to bring the doctor in and they weren't in some way intrinsically involved with getting to your solution set and and you know defeating your BBEG, um, then why is why are they there in the first place? You know, yeah. a, a contributor, but not the catalyst, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. I, I think it I think it balanced pretty well for me personally. Yeah, I mean, the, the doctor was there to, you know, explain what was going on, give the the exposition and, hey, here's the, the clue that you need in order to solve this and then is conveniently taken out of the equation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think they did a good job of letting him be part of the team, but not really taking over the team, which he can do if given enough leash and has always had that sort of, well, in the few instances where we've seen uh, 10 and Sarah Jane share screen time, their, their camaraderie is very level. Mm-hmm. Um, it's mm-hmm. not a, if, if this were a, a Tom Baker standing in front of uh, Elizabeth Sladen again, it would still be that sort of, a, Oh, Sarah Jane kind of pat on the head, sort of nearly condescending kind of um, um, power balance. Uh, but this, I think this time around, and we saw that from the first time in uh, was it a school reunion or so, that when the two of them met again, this doctor has been humbled by all of the, uh, all of the things that have occurred between their last, um, their last interaction. And I think the doctor comes very much hat in hand to realize uh, the importance that Sarah Jane had in the, in the grand scheme. So I, I like the fact that there is reference to, um, to the doctor having met Luke already virtually. Mm. So a- <laughs> that leads to my question. Like when exactly is this happening in the doctor to who timeline, since we're watching this. So out of sync with that production wise, this was, this was shot after the end of time. Okay, because I kind so of got that, the sense at the end that this was part of his farewell tour that he did. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, so you've already had the you know, stolen Earth, um, you know, grand reunion. You've had you know all of these things, and, and remember because you had it had to be at that point because that was when K nine was handed over mm-hmm. to be that force that was watching the black hole that had kept him busy through the first couple seasons. So yeah, this is this is the sort of the button up in the the, the victory lap for <laughs> for Tennant before yeah. before he bowed out. I I like to think that this was one of the adventures that he went on shortly before uh yeah right before like the the end when he goes to to meet the Ood or whatnot and when he shows up with the the cowboy hat and stuff it's like this was this was right before that mm-hmm. he he knew that he was that his time was running out and so he you know. He may needed to stop and and you know take care of some things, but I think it, it capitalizes on the fact that Tennant went out strong mm-hmm. uh, and went out with a. It wasn't 
the the lead up to it, the fact that the public knew that it was going to be happening, wasn't something that was being treated necessarily very melancholy. Um, it wasn't. It uh, didn't have the the kind of uh, forced uh, gravity and pathos that that something like leading up to Matt Smith's exit was, where it was kind of oh. It's going to happen. It's going to, oh, we're going to break your heart. We're going to have all these lead-up episodes where you're starting to feel really sad because you know this is looming on the horizon. Uh, he, Tennant's whole final stretch was all full tilt, whiz-bang, you know, full energy. He did not, he didn't pause for a moment until the final moments to start really um, uh, twisting heartstrings. So he wanted to go out upbeat and, and powerful. So this was part of that, this, you know, him skidding into the, um, uh, into the chapel and that sort of thing. That's, that's, uh, you would expect that sort of thing from his second season, uh, as opposed to, you know, here in the, in the, like we said, the, the victory lap. So they haven't been shy on this show about, uh, like really heavy topics. And this story really didn't do anything too differently. So I do feel like the, the Peter literally sacrificing his life for the woman he loves kind of got downplayed a bit. Like it, it didn't have that kind of weight that it deserves. Or is this maybe a subject that's uh, just a little too mature for the target demographic to fully grasp? I don't know if it's necessarily too mature, but it's not something that, that I think they would want to to linger on for too long because it's mm-hmm. something that doesn't necessarily have an immediate uh, point of reference for your audience. So they're they're certainly aware. I mean, they understand relationships. They they probably your your target demographic probably to a certain degree understands romantic uh, involvement and 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 devotion and and those kinds of emotions. But to the depth of of um, even to the point of of a, of a, a marriage or, or 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 that kind of a commitment that or in this sacrificial gesture that that Peter makes doesn't necessarily have something that they can land on. So, but but they're aware enough to know that okay, this is this is this has significance. This is really important. This is a this is a, a testament. To to these uh, to these feelings that these characters are expressing that I'm not wholly unfamiliar with, I just don't have a personal point of reference for, other than maybe some adults in my life that have said these sort of things or platitudes that get mentioned. So, I, I think they handled it to about as much as you would expect a twelve to maybe fifteen year old audience to really want to sink into, before it just becomes a matter of I don't okay. Sure. They, if that's what you say, okay, they, they, they must love each other very much. Sure. And the the thing that got me thinking about it was just that Liz Sladen sold the emotion in this one. Mm. Like, she was so good in this episode. And it really got me thinking. I'm like, this was a traumatic experience. Like, there was a lot of things going on right here. And it just gets swept under the rug kind of, you know, kind of quickly. And so I... It really kind of stood out to me, like, there needs to be some more attention paid to this. Well, and mm-hmm. something that I thought about kind of after finishing is that they kind of kept it quick and at a younger level by having it all happen in this episode. We didn't get Peter introduced 
you know, four stories ago and have them slowly develop this relationship over the run of the show. He comes in at the beginning of this at part one of this story. They introduce him. You are immediately suspicious of him because, you know, he because came out. Of, yeah, because he came out of nowhere and he in 20 minutes is ready to propose and get married. So when he goes, there's less emotional investment into the character than if they had told that story some other way. Yeah, it's true. It's, uh, again, a, an example of the careful balance that this show strikes on many of its choices. Um, give a certain degree of that to, to Gareth Roberts for his writing and being aware or perhaps being from time to time reminded um, by Davies or whoever uh, it may be that uh, that you have to be cognizant of your uh, of your target audience and, and what their capacities are. But at the same time, as we've said, this is like a farm team getting viewers ready for for Doctor Who proper, and they need to be prepared for these sort of things because the the you know the main stage show doesn't pull punches either. So. True. All right. Well, uh, I know the three of you last time uh, discussed the guest roster for the upcoming L.I. Who 60th anniversary summer special. You know, normally happens in November. We're going to do it over the summer for various reasons. Nothing exciting um, has happened recently they, that's going to make me regret missing this, has it? No, absolutely not. Um, it's just going to be a big snooze fest, and we're all just, you know, going to go to the White Castle with Sasha Dewan. Um, because Sasha Dewan is going to be there. <laughs> I, I don't want White Castle, but I'll go with Sasha. Um, yeah. So uh, latest addition to the roster, uh, he's going to be there for specifically just for the Saturday and Sunday. Even though this is going to be a, a Friday, Saturday, Sunday event, uh, he'll be coming in Saturday, Sunday uh, to do a handful of panels, do some uh, some signings and some photo opportunities, uh, and just make everybody genuinely happy because that that man has a huge presence. Yeah. No, he is, he is a pleasure to be around i loved every minute that i got to spend with him at uh at gallifrey last year um mm-hmm. so yeah if you, if you have the chance to go and spend any amount of time with sasha dewan you owe it to yourself to do so he adores the fan base too i mean every once in a while you come across a talent who comes to these things and and they really love their experience you know what they've done mm-hmm. for the program that has people coming out you have others that come out there and they just love the convention experience because they they like to have their ego stroked or they just love to be able to sort of see the the energy that grows out of these collections of people around some property that they've been involved with. And then there are those that come to these things and just love watching people get excited. You know, they 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 love seeing that they were a part of something that has you so excited to the fact that you've bringing your entire family or you're doing cosplay or you're, you know, you're, you're doing all of these things that, that the con energy brings forward. And they realize that they were some small part of making that magic. So yeah, it's a, uh, he's a rare breed. And, and the fact that when we saw him, was it, he was, he's there the same year Mandeep was there and she's another one who's yes. just like that. And the two of them were like, popcorn kernels just ping 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 dangerous on a panel together (laughs) very much so yes i would love to see sasha on a panel with paul i don't know why you would necessarily pair them together 
they didn't share screen time or anything, but just their personas. I would love to see the two of them together. Yeah, no, the, you would pair them together because that would be freaking awesome. That's why. Yeah. But well, um, Jay, I'm going to let you spearhead this one because I uh, I was kind of sad when I heard this was going to be the case. This was like one of my, yeah. wouldn't it be awesome if this happened things? So yeah, Neil Gaiman uh, has come out and said that he he has no interest in being the Doctor Who showrunner, but that he would not mind writing for the show again. Uh, I think specifically he he quoted, uh, I, I don't ever want to showrun Doctor Who. I loved writing the episodes and stories I've already written, and I'd love to write another one day uh, when things are quieter. <laughs> That's yeah. such a letdown. I mean, I, I understand. There was – uh, th- th- he's never said or made any allusions to wanting to cross the cross the threshold into into running a program. Mm-hmm. Right? That, that's not his stock and trade. But his dedication to the cr- the story craft and things like that have always had people wondering. Yeah, but what if he did? You know, what if he was overseeing kind of the you know the the interconnectedness of all of the stories within a given season, or taking this really complicated universe and getting to touch more than just a single story's worth of it at any given moment? Wouldn't it be great if somebody who's such a world builder as he is could get to tinker with that for a while? And this is just not his flavor. You know, Doctor Who is still a British show. I don't know if they would ever go to the style, but if they did go to a writer room style, having him be one of the voices in that room could be a happy compromise for us as fans to get him touching more than just a single story without burdening him with all the other obligations of being the showrunner. Yeah, being like a head writer or story editor so that he can just sort of... uh, tweak and adjust things to to maintain continuity or just put that little bit of extra offbeat spark that he does with so much of his work. Mm-hmm. But I can understand. Uh, like, like you said, when things are quieter, I don't think things are going to get <laughs> any quieter for him with everything that's going on. Um, yeah. But, I mean, it's, it is it is something to kind of – the fact that he wants to come back to the show is exciting in and of itself. And I will – I will take a single episode here and there from him because they're they're so fantastic. And we'll see where the, the future of the show takes us. Absolutely. But in, in other news, we, we learned something about Praxius that, man, this would have made it so much better. I agree. And if you don't remember Praxius, just, it was the plastics, the microplastics episode where we spent a lot of time digging around in like a, 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 a trash heap in Peru and things like that uh, because we were finding that, that uh, humans were being uh, slowly poisoned. And I think at the time we were reviewing it, we actually uh, talked about the fact that wh- how, how could you have something like this dangers of plastic storyline? And not have the autons. Right? Yeah. So – Leave it to uh, your writer at the time, Pete McTighe, who, who's been uh, who's been showing up at various cons and things. And he's very, you know, very outspoken. It gets a chance to share quite a bit of interesting information. Said, "Yeah, that was that was some of the original intent, but for whatever reason, it got trimmed out for complexity." I don't think I agree with that at all. <laughs> I don't think any of us particularly liked where that story landed. Yeah, that was a bad call. I, yeah. I don't know. I don't know who thought that that needed to be what they you cut, but 
man, that wasn't it. <laughs> yeah. I, the, the mention in the, in the interview is that it was a collective decision, but obviously, you know, Chris Chibnall as a, as a showrunner was sort of at the forefront of that, but, but that there was a budgetary concern with it. And I thought, wow, these are mannequins. I mean, as opposed to, I'm trying to, I, I, I didn't want to have to go back and watch Praxius again, but I might go back and watch Praxius again to see if that was actually handled in a very budget conscious manner. I don't remember how it all manifested itself as far as the 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 drama and the and the intensity, whether that was done with practical effects or special effects or or whatever, whether it was just uh, assumed and it was just um, you know drama through dialogue. Well, but, last time we saw the Autons, they put some weird makeup on people's face to make them look more plasticky, and then cut to the hand opening up as a gun. Like that doesn't yeah. seem like it's going to take a lot of budget. Shouldn't. But maybe if you were trying to do it with the most modern twist to it and and in order to try and sell it, the premise would have to be done in some sort of extra you, you have to kind of raise the bar. Mm. And if you're going to raise the bar, maybe that raises the budget and they just didn't want to allow for that because they were spending so much on that orphan planet thing with the uh, dregs. <laughs> why would you bring I, that up? Well, because that was the same season and it was, you know, it was an off-world uh, adventure and that requires a lot of sets and, and uh, prosthetics and stuff. So that probably blew the budget. I'm assuming. I'm, I'm guessing. I'm predicting. But one thing that uh, I saw come by in the news this week that isn't really news. It's, it's kind of a name check, but it just it makes you feel good is that uh, even really, really brilliant astrophysicists are Giant Doctor Who nerds, too, and <laughs> sufficient nerds to be able to say, yeah, sometimes the show gets it right, or at least they describe it right. Yeah, so apparently one of our favorite quotes, the wibbly-wobbly timey-wimey, is scientifically accurate. It's canon. <laughs> it's, it's world canon. I mean, it should come as no surprise that astrophysicists are Doctor Who nerds. How do we think they get scientific consultants? Yeah, true. Yeah. Yeah, and to a certain degree, I, we know a lot of uh, uh, a lot of us, uh, astronomers and and uh, rocket scientists and things like that that are fans of the show that watch it for obvious entertainment reasons. But there's also a certain degree of sinister satisfaction to to watch and tear apart the pseudoscience too. So you know you, you sort of gain on both sides. This apparently, you know that that descriptor of the fact that that time is is a massive unknown uh, and is unpredictable at times and has theoretical aspects to it that make it extremely unstable, you know, wibbly wobbly, is accurate. You know, you got wormholes out there, you know, the the concept of, of, uh, uh, of faster than light travel, uh, these are all still live topics. So if that kind of thing is possible, then yeah, timey-wimey, it applies. And it's a big ball. I'm, I'm waiting for them to, to justify Jeremy Barramy now. Right. There you go. That's When you untangle the ball a little bit, that's what it folds out into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's all connected. <laughs> well, next time when we come back, we're going to be uh, we're going to be going back into our tournament of time with our uh, the semifinals for the Friends of the Doctor and the Masters. 
Yeah. And I'm, I for one am not looking forward to this at all. No, no. I, I have a feeling that this is actually going to be worse than the finals. Uh, just a prediction, yeah. because it, just to give everybody kind of a refresher here, when it comes to the Friends of the Doctor, which are non-companions, these are sort of slightly on the periphery uh, characters, we went through, we eliminated from, was it 16 down to 4, which left us with a bracket that has the Brigadier versus Strax and oh, Wilf, Wilfred Mott versus River Song. So that's your pairing just for that tournament competition. And then for the Masters, we've got on one side, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but we got Sasha Duan and Eric Roberts. Um, but then on the other side, we've got um, Michelle Gomez and Anthony Ainley. And some of you may be thinking, oh, this, these are kind of slam dunks because you have personal favorites. And favoritism definitely factors into it. But remember the rules of these things have to do with contributions to the entire uh, universe of the show and and the sort of the overarching stories, and then the um, the desire to want to see them back for uh, at least one more adventure. So factor those things in, and we'll discuss it in a couple of weeks. It's gonna be yeah. it's gonna be brutal. Uh, yeah. So this is why we do it. All right. Well, this has been episode 498 of Gallifrey Public Radio. Until next time, this is Jay saying, that would be a great band name. <laughs> and this is Gear saying, Autons, Praxius, Pellets, little bits of microplastic. Ooh, I got some 3D printing to do. I got to go. <laughs> and this is Haley saying, do not look at me. Everything is normal. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you next time. And I'll see. Bye. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Gallifrey Public Radio. Want to keep the conversation going? You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Or just send us a good old-fashioned email to feedback at gallifreypublicradio.com. You can also give us a phone call at 754-225-5477. That's 754-CALL-GPR. And you may hear your voice on a future episode of the show. Everything's got to end sometime. Otherwise, nothing would ever get started. Join us next week for a brand new episode. Jacob Hansen. Gallifrey Public Radio is copyright 2023. We'll see you next time.